Okay, so over the next few weeks, you can be praying um, for me in particular as I'm going to be looking at what we want to focus our attention on. I got it right? You guys in, out there on the internet, you okay with it? Okay, so, uh, um, okay, so as, we're, um, as we're looking at the next few weeks, I always like to take a couple of weeks during January and focus in on who we are as a church and where we are as a church. And so that'll obviously be a little different this year than it was last year or any year before. Um, but we'll still be doing two services. And, and I really, I think um, the idea that, that struck me as I was digging into what, what would we want to be talking about is, is I really want to spend a few weeks talking about how weariness can affect us, um, not only as individuals, but as a church. And so um, what does it mean that in a, in a tough season that we don't let ourselves grow weary of doing good? And so um, that's going to be the, kind of the emphasis for the next few weeks. And yes, we'll look at, like we do most years, at kind of the things that, that are always fascinating to us. Um, and I think you'll be surprised by these when you see these, the nickels, the noses, and the nails conversations that churches go through as well. Um, and so I, I hope you'll be here for that. But I, I meant literally... Please, if you don't already pray for me as I'm preparing that, um, my, by far my preference for preaching is to have a passage and let the passage decide what the context, what the applications, all that stuff is. And so for me to say I'm going to teach on a concept means I've got to, I've got to do this number through Scripture and, and that's a little more difficult and, and not as much, not as joyful for me to experience it that way. So anyway... Um, I'm, I'm excited about doing it, and, uh, and I'm, I'm likely to, to feel like I'm stepping on toes as we look at what the Bible teaches about this, but um, there you go. Um, and then another thing that's kind of interesting is, uh, is so you, normally, in addition to the commentaries and my own notes and whatever else I have, I usually, at some point when I'm going to be teaching on a passage, I will, I will go to the internet and I will do something like on YouTube, I will type in the, type in the passage and write you know, that passage sermon, and Usually there's, I don't know, two, three million hits uh, of sermons on that, on those topics, whatever it is, whatever passage it is, there's so much. And then I pick and choose different people from different backgrounds and that kind of stuff, and we'll listen to a little bit of what they say or whatever. And so I was a little bit disconcerted this week when I searched Advent, Mark, and there was one. So that's, that's disconcerting. And so because nobody's dumb enough to teach the Advent from the book of Mark. Um, and in fact, what's funny is when I listened to this guy's sermon, he spent most of the time talking about essentially lamenting, like, why did I do this? I don't understand why I did this. This was a terrible idea, trying to teach Advent from the book of Mark. And, and here's why. In the book of Mark, there are no wise men, there's no shepherds, there's no manger, there's no Bethlehem. Uh, Mary is barely mentioned in the entire, she's only mentioned twice in the whole book and only once by name. Joseph is not mentioned at all. There is no baby Jesus anywhere in the book of Mark. No cake, no ice cream, happy birthday, right? That's, that's what you feel like when you dive into the book of Mark looking for the Advent. So, so there you go. Is there, is there no Advent? Well, there is. Um, if you'll remember, an Advent is about an arrival, an appearance, a coming. That's the idea. And though all the different Gospels engage with the whole picture, I'm not one of those who buys into this idea that, that you can neatly des, you know, kind of carve out who the different authors' audiences were and what their, 
what they're trying to say. I don't think that's neat and clean by any means. But maybe you can, maybe you can look at and see that as, as these different authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as they, as they go into the account of who Jesus is, maybe the light they shine on the whole picture is a little different in different areas. They bring a certain emphasis to different things for sure. Also, want to quickly comment, um, the one sermon that I did hear um, that I did get to listen to um, in regards to Advent in the book of Mark. Um, there was a line in it that I told one of the guys this week, I was like, I'm stealing that line. Uh, and it was, as he went through the same list, a similar list that I just did, saying none of this is in the book of Mark. He said, there's, in fact, there's no, there's no Jesus Christ at all until verse 9. And so I was like, oh, that's a good line. I'm going to throw that in there. There's no Jesus Christ at all until verse 9. Until I went back and checked him, and it turns out Jesus is actually mentioned in verse 1. So bring your Bibles to church. Um, I nearly used that line if I hadn't double checked at the last minute. I nearly used that same line. And some one of you would have needed to come up and go, like, hey, actually, Jesus is in verse one. And so you need to make sure that you don't count on another human to invest you in God's word. You need to be looking at God's word and studying God's word and reading God's word and listening to God's word and memorizing God's word yourself not counting on a human agent to do that for you, um, especially not me. Um, even if you were going to trust other people, I would be a terrible choice. And so I will tell you, it's amazing to me, week after week, one of my disciplines is that last thing, I'm on the way to church, I listen to the passage I'm going to be teaching from one more time. And I'm amazed at how often there is a correction or a redirection that happens with that one final listening. And so Certainly, if I've been studying it all week and looking at it all week, and then that happens, certainly God has something like that in store for all of us, not just me. So I would really, really encourage you to be doing that as well. So back to this. Um, so John's focus certain is, is if, he's, if you're going to say he brings attention to anything in regards to the Advent, it is who is coming and where he's coming from. Who was he before he came to earth? Who was, who was Jesus Christ before the advent, before he came to earth? The creator of heaven and earth, the word from the beginning, God himself made flesh. That's what happened. The advent is God himself coming to earth and stop and consider coming to earth and experiencing coming to earth first and starting as a single-celled organism. That God himself came and experienced what it was to be an embryo. To came and experience what it was to grow. And I don't know what that was like for him. I don't know exactly what that experience. Obviously, we can't know exactly. But that's a big deal. We'll talk more about that. Luke, Luke's emphasis, the sacrifice is here. The big one. The last one. The one who has come to die for you and for me. As we look at the week, or our emphasis is love, he would say, the lover of your souls has arrived. The one who's been thinking about you from the beginning has shown up. He has the most heralds, the most different people who show up and proclaim who this baby Jesus is, the compassionate Savior. Listen, Luke would say, he isn't what you expect, but he's better. Matthew, the king has come. An important way of understanding all of Christianity is through this lens, the lens of kingdom thinking. You could really teach the entire doctrine of Christianity through the lens of a kingdom and a king, and Matthew does that for us. He, show, he shows us this suffering king has come. It's an amazing, amazing picture. And yet, with all of this, we still honestly have so little detail that we can know with confidence about the birth of Jesus Christ. 
We have more than you would expect and much, much less than you think. Um, How many wise men were there? We don't know. How old was Jesus when they showed up? We don't know. Was he born at night? We sing about it a lot. But we have no indication other than the fact that the angels came to the shepherds at night. But, but does that necessarily mean that they showed up at the same time Jesus was born? Maybe they were like, no, no, give the, give the new mom a break. Give her a few hours to recover and then we'll go send shepherds. Like, I don't think if, if those of you who have given birth would want a bunch of shepherds showing up kind of right at that instant, right? That would not be, not be a positive experience. So we, we don't, maybe it's the middle of the day when Jesus was born. We don't know. Um, was it spring, winter, or fall? Was it cold or was it warm? Was there hay or not? Was there in the springtime? They don't gather hay. Maybe, maybe there wasn't even hay in there. Were there even animals present? We don't, we don't know that. It doesn't say. Was it, a, was it an, an inn or was it a guest house? Was it a stable? Was it a cave? Or was it a lean-to? Was there just two of them there, just the two of them for the birth? That would be strange for a Jewish birth, or would the whole household have come out to experience, at least the women come out to experience? This is Mary's hometown. We assume, we, we'd sing about and talk about there not being anybody else there, but maybe Mary's mom was there holding her hand the whole time. It was her town, after all. And, and Joseph's as well. Maybe, maybe there was a whole bunch of people. Maybe there were midwives. And the truth is, we don't know the answers to a lot of these questions. Was there a whole family there? Was it the first night that they arrived, or was it a few days later? Was it a short labor, or a normal 12 to 24 hours? Did they ride donkeys or not? This stuff is all supposition and guesswork. We just don't know. It's important, but it's not deal-breaking. So I would tell you this. As we go through these types of questions, it's important to ask, to to realize, this, uh, this is what I think. I think anything we can do to humanize that moment is good for us. Anything we can do to, to point out that this wasn't some type of surgical experience in a clean space is important to realize. The idea that God himself, the creator of heaven and earth, chose to be born under these conditions as a, as a forerunner to the type of life as a servant, as a poor traveling rabbi that he would lead, I think is healthy for us. I think anything that, that, that brings it home to us as the reality of a God who experienced life developing in the womb of a woman who he had created and chosen before the creation of time for this role is good for us. It's one of the things I love about going to Israel, and, and I couldn't verbalize it right until uh, Terrence Thedford re- talked about this with me one time, is that people go to Israel expecting to have this giant heavenly spiritual moment. And by the way, some people do. But what everyone experiences is a powerful, dusty, rocky, earthly moment. It is is important for us to remember that the Christian faith isn't about us going there. It's about the fact that He came here. That's what makes us different, is that we serve a God who came near. A God who came to us. A God who advented, if you will. A God who appeared, who came to us. That's, that's what's so stunning is that he came and experienced life as a human being and then did all the things that he accomplished under that. That's what Mark has to say for us. Mark, Mark wants us to emphasize these authors don't want us to miss the things we have to know, the things we have to not miss, the most important parts. And Mark would say this, your teacher is here. 
The rabbi has arrived, the one you're supposed to follow. Catch this. It's not just that he showed up, it's that you're supposed to follow him. He is the fulfillment of our hopes if we'll follow him. He has an abundant life for us if we'll follow him. He is the suffering servant king who comes and he, again, the candle, he loves you, so follow him. Trust in him. Believe in him. Of course, Mark's emphasis is on the ministry of Jesus. After all, there are a lot of babies, but there's only one rabbi worth giving up everything to follow. So when is the advent in the book of Mark? Well, it's in verse 7. The first advent is found in chapter 1, verse 7. And he, John the Baptist, preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Remember, that's John the Baptist's job. John the Baptist's job is to let us know that the advent is happening. The kingdom is coming. The Lord is here. Isaiah and John the Baptist, for all the differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John, Isaiah and John the Baptist are the unifying connector. The prophecy about the one coming to make way for the Lord and the one who makes way for the Lord. In, in, Mark once, uh, in, in Matthew 3, 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Luke includes the entire account of the promise and birth of John the Baptist. It begins like this in Luke 1, 7. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. We get the entire account of how he has predicted that his, he's going to come by an angel and that John has to be mute for several months, his, his, I mean his dad, not John, that his dad has to be mute for several months, and then when John comes, the first thing he's able to announce is the name of his son, John, as promised by the angel. Luke 1.7 says, oh, I just read that. John 1.6 says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. See, John the Baptist is really underrated. I think John the Baptist is underrated because of his timing. He shows up just in time for someone more important for him than him to show up. And that's bad for PR. You don't, you don't want to be the, the person who puts out a movie the same week somebody puts out a better movie of the same story, right? That's not, that's not good for your PR. Everybody forgets about yours. So sure enough, that's the same thing. John the Baptist shows up, and he's the most, according to Jesus, the most important person born on the planet outside of himself. No one in more important has been born, and yet John gets no press. Why is that? Well, because that's exactly the way John would have wanted it. John the Baptist, that was his, that's his motto. He must increase, I must decrease. He's one of the most amazing people in the world in that when his disciples come to him and say, hey, a lot of your people are starting to follow this other guy over here, John's answer is, and they're right to do so. Because I need to decrease, he needs to increase. He's the only reason I exist John the Baptist only exists for this Jesus character. By the way, how, should that be different from us? I submit it should not be. That it should be the same for us. That's what he would have wanted. Mark 1, 4-5, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem are going out to him and are being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Huge crowds coming to him. You know why? They knew they needed to repent. You know what makes them different from us? They knew they needed to repent. 
I found myself coveting the first century Israeli mindset of the realization there's something wrong and we need to repent. The way we're doing this is wrong. The way we're living this is incorrect. We're not following. That's all repenting is, is the realization that you're going the wrong way and your teacher's going, nope, nope, back this way, back this way, and you need to repent. We had a great moment one of the years in Israel. I have a picture of it, but I didn't, I didn't want to mess with that this morning. Of As we were walking, one of the young women, I stopped to have a conversation with the guide, and there was a fork in the road, and one of the young women who didn't know where we were, I mean, we're in a foreign country in a weird place, and she just keeps walking. She chooses the wrong path and keeps walking. And guess what the entire rest of the tour did? They all followed her, just like, well, I mean, literally the only two people who know where we're going are standing over here talking. They're just... They're just walking, like, they're going the wrong direction, but they're making great time, right? Like, at some point, I was like, should we just stand here and wait and see how far they get before they, like, end up in Gaza Strip or something? Like, that's, you might, you might want to come back this way, people. Like, it's, it, is, it is our tendency. We need to repent and turn around and take back the ground we've gone the wrong way and go the correct direction. That's exactly what we're being called to do. As Christians, it's not like as believers we don't still have a role for repentance. We continue to get to repent. The minute we learn we're off base, off target, that we're wrong, we're dishonest, we're lying, we're lying to ourselves, we get to go, oh, wow, okay, yeah, I need to follow my rabbi the way he is telling me to go. I would love that for us as individuals. I would love that for our church. I would love that for our nation, that we would learn that we need to repent. In fact, I want to take a minute and pray. And, and I really do feel like as I'm looking ahead at this don't grow weary of doing good, I feel like as a church over the next few weeks, we may have a call to repent. Because I think maybe even as a church, we have grown weary of doing good. Just because it's been a hard year, we think, well, let me pray. Father, I want to call um, that, uh, a call out to you that you would teach us when and how to repent. I would pray that for our nation and our culture, for sure. We have a whole nation of people more and more compromising rather than repenting. Accepting and coming, going along rather than repenting. And God, as we, as we continue to love each other, I pray that for our church, that you would help us repent and follow you, no matter what it costs us. God, I pray that we would be prepared to lead a generation that way. God, I pray you would teach us in that. I pray in my own life that the things I look to for comfort other than you, the things I look to for fulfillment other than you, that you would teach me, other than the things you have given me from your very hands, I pray you would teach me to repent of those things and instead follow my rabbi, your son. I pray this in his name. Amen. So as we continue to look, so who is this Mark character that we're studying about? Um, Mark was a companion of Paul and Barnabas. He went on a missionary journey with them. We see in Acts 13, 13, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. Aren't you glad I read that rather than you? And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So this is John. You go, wait, but that's John. John Mark was the name of this person who's traveling with them. We know him as Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark that we're looking at today. That's the same John Mark. Now, what happens is then the Apostle Paul, so he, in other words, the, the writer of Acts, Luke, is nice about this. What happens is John Mark bails on them. 
He gets, a, he gets an over his head. He didn't count the cost. He's overwhelmed. He can't keep going, so he quits, and he goes home. We know that because when he came back later, when they show up, when Paul and Barnabas show back up back home, John Mark comes and says, hey, I want to go with you. I was wrong. I want to go with you on this next trip. And Paul, who tells us we're supposed to restore such a one, fails to restore such a one, and instead says, like, nope, he's on his own. He's not coming with me. And Barnabas says, well, he can come with me. Barnabas, whose name means the son of encouragement, says, well, he can come with me then. And Paul says, fine, you take him. I'll take Silas, and we'll go this way. Barnabas and John Mark go that way. The good news is the gospel to the Gentiles is doubled in that moment, but in, it's, which God uses for good things. But it takes a while. Eventually, by the way, not only is John Mark reconciled to Barnabas, but he's also apparently reconciled to Paul and Peter. Because most people accept that what we have in John Mark's gospel is actually the fact that John Mark served as Peter's note-taker and scribe later in life. And so you understand that the book of Mark is probably best understood as Peter's gospel, which makes tons of sense when you read it. It's probably part of why it seems to move so fast and to jump from topic to topic, right? ADHD Peter is teaching on this, and like someone like me gets distracted by something and wants to talk about that, and it moves and moves, and John Mark is not exactly sure how long we're diff- between different things. So because of the way Peter teaches it, what you get 40-something times in the book of Mark is, is that Mark connects two stories with one word, and the word is? Immediately. Other gospel writers, it may be weeks between these two events, but in the book of Mark, it's immediately. Just because that's, that's the feel of it. It's moving quickly. And of course, G, uh, Peter wasn't a historian like Luke. He was a disciple. So naturally, we get quickly to the calling of the disciples, not so much time spent in Bethlehem. So um, keep in mind that many writers refer to the book of Mark as merely a long, passion, weak narrative with just an introduction on it. That's how it feels when you read it. Mark gets you quickly to the passion and he stays there and he wants you to understand the significance of it. So what is his message? I believe the message of Mark is this. The Advent demands a response. An immediate response. A quick response. An urgent response. Um, Years ago I had somebody paint this picture for me when it came to the urgency of the gospel. The urgency of the response. We hear that Jesus Christ, the creator of heaven and earth, came and experienced life as a human being. He came here 2,000 years ago in order to rescue us, in order to save us, and there should be an immediate response to that information. What I heard was a guy actually teach it this way. He said, I want you to imagine that I give you a, a time, the ability to time travel, and I send you back in time to the top floors of the World Trade Center at 7.45 a.m. on September 11th, 2001. What are you going to do? You're going, oh my gosh, it's 7.45. I don't remember exactly when the planes hit, but it's soon. We got to get, hey, everybody, we got to get out of here. I mean, we got, there's, there's no time. There's, there's, I've got information for you that you didn't know, and now I know it. And you, we gotta, we, listen, we got to go. we got to change. we got to repent what you're doing. Stop doing that, and instead do what I'm telling you to do. And what is the response for us as believers even when God speaks into us like this, when we see something like this, is to go like, well, but, sorry, one second. I'm on the phone. Sorry. I've got a meeting scheduled in 20 minutes. And you go, no, you don't. 
It's, it's that you, you, you don't have a meeting in 20 minutes. But I've got, I mean, I've got three more emails to respond to. I can't, I can't just, I'm, I'm working on this. There's a great account of some of the people, um, of the, some of the people who survived it. A woman who tells a firsthand account who gets to the bottom and realizes that she has the mystery novel that she had brought with her to work that day in her hand when she gets down to the bottom of the stairs. And she wasn't reading it when she found out that the, 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 the building had been hit. And so she realized later, like, I must have gone back for that book. Like, what? Why would anyone do that? Well, because you're human. Our human tendency is to stall. When, we're, when an urgent thing is demanded of us, our, our natural tendency is to go like, no, 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 let's not mess with the status quo. I might need my mystery novel at the end of the world, right? That's a, that's a feeling that we have. There's an urgent response demanded in the book of Mark. And when we see that Jesus has come, that's what you see. Jesus, John the Baptist shows up, hey, the Messiah is coming. And what's the response of all the people? They all flood out into the wilderness by Jericho, which is not a nice place. They all flood out there to be baptized because they realize he's right. These buildings are coming down any minute. We've got to respond to this. Listen to this. We get uh, the, the types of active verbs that, you, that Jesus gives people that they're supposed to do. They go like this. There's com- these are common ones throughout the book of Mark. Listen, pay attention, hear. Not surprising. That's what you'd be shouting in the World Trade Center. Like, somebody please listen to me. We've got to, we've got to go. Listen, hear what I'm saying here. Mark 1, 14 and 15, now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Do you hear the urgency in that? Listen, I'm looking at my watch. It's time. It's now. Mark 1, 17, Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Mark 2, 14, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth and said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Let's take a second and reference this. Okay, so we're going to talk about the second advent, but there's a weird middle advent. There's the first advent when Jesus came as a baby, which Mark doesn't mention. Then there is this second advent we're going to get to in a second when he's going to come again. In the middle of there, though, I want to comment on what Levi experiences here, Matthew experiences here, which I would call the personal advent. See, this is when Jesus showed up for Matthew. Matthew probably didn't know about the shepherds, although he's the one who wrote about the wise men. At this moment, he probably knew nothing about this. He just knew that Jesus was the king, the Messiah. He recognized that somehow in this moment, and Jesus walks up to a tax collector in the midst of doing his taxes and says, follow me, and notice what the response is. And he rose and followed him. This is the only sane response to the creator of heaven and earth calling on us to repent. The only sane response is to say, yes, sir, you got it. How high? What direction? That's the only sane response in our lives. I'm not telling you I get this any better than you do. We're all terrible at this, but it's because we're not particularly sane as a race when it comes to this stuff. But this is what we're called to do. You'll, you may recognize this in Mark five nineteen. This is the guy who was healed of, of the um, legion of demons. He did not permit it. The man wanted to follow Jesus, and it says in verse 19, but he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. 
You may recognize that, especially at this church, because that's what's on the sign as you leave towards the 69 exit. That's what it says there. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. In a very short amount of time, Jesus is going to come back to this region where he should be unknown, the Decapolis, not a Jewish city of 10 pagan cities. He's going to show up there and he's going to feed not the 5,000 like he did in Galilee, but he's going to feed 4,000 in the Decapolis. Why would Jesus draw a crowd of 4,000 men plus women and children? As far as we know, he had one witness in the region, this man. This man who went home and told his friends what the Lord had done for him. And then when Jesus shows back up the next time, thousands of them want to hear from him. I don't know that we're doing this. Is this our response? Is our response to the good news of Jesus to go tell our friends what the Lord has done for us? He also gives these kind of commands. Peace, be still, go in peace, do not fear, only believe, arise and come away. There's a response required of Advent. Our lives ought to be different because of it. He came, and the final thing that must be mentioned, obviously at a day like today, is the, of the celebration of the first Advent is to accentuate the second one. We've talked about this first Advent for weeks, and we do most years. And we talk Sunday after Sunday about the, uh, uh, the individual Advent, the, the Advent of God coming into my life, Jesus Christ coming into my life, Jesus Christ coming into your life, and continuing to show up in surprising places in our lives. And calling on us to repent and to change and to grow and to follow Him and to do things His way. We do communion pretty much every Sunday. And, and we'll do it again on Christmas Eve. One way we celebrate His coming is to anticipate His returning. And we, we, we read this passage when we're going through the communion every week. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We need the constant reminder to be conformed to what he is like because he's coming back. And it's something we need to be remembering and engaging with. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling impatient about it. It's been 2,000 years, right? Uh, I don't know about you, but the skeptic in me begins to go, I'm wondering if we've misinterpreted this somehow. Okay, maybe he's not actually coming back. Maybe we've missed this somehow. Maybe, maybe we've, we've, I've, I've blanked on this. Or maybe it just begins to feel kind of rote, repetitive, even biological, right? We eat, we go to the bathroom, we sleep, and then we repeat the process. We get up, we go to work, we get done with work, we go home, watch Netflix, repeat the process. Like this, this, this repetitive pattern that we have, and it begins to feel like this is how it's always been, and this is how it's always going to be. And it starts feeling that way to us, I think, where every day is just like the day before, and every day is just like the day after it, and there's really nothing special in regards to that. And, and I think the only thing that we experience is when it, when it gets more difficult, when it gets harder, like it has been in many ways this year, and we go, oh, now it's even harder, Right? Now I don't even get to go to work, or now I don't even get to experience this other thing, or, or whatever. Here's what's wild. So it's been 2,000 years, and it's troubling to me that probably the original disciples all thought it was going to happen in their lifetime. And not only did it not happen in their lifetime, not only did it not happen before AD 100, but we're in AD 2000, and it still hasn't happened. And then add 20 more years on there, and it's still not happened. 
I mean, surely if he was going to come back, he'd have come back, I don't know, during World War II, right? Or World War I, or the Crusades. I mean, they were all working really hard to get him to come back during the Crusades. Surely that would have done it, right? That's when Jesus would have been like, fine, fine, I'll come back. Like, like I don't, is there a, it's just weird to me. Is it weird to anybody else? Here's what's wild. It was weird. Thank you. It was weird. It was weird to Peter too. Peter, the God, again, we're saying that Mark is maybe Peter's gospel. Here's what Peter says. He says, they're going to say, 2 Peter 3, 4, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. I mean, this is written before AD 70, and they're already feeling that way. It's already beginning to feel like the same thing over and over again. So Peter answers the question for us, reminds us of this, 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Don't you love when they call us beloved? Always makes you feel good. I mean that, it really does. I love it. Do not overlook this one thing, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Isn't it intriguing that Peter who probably thought Jesus was coming back during his lifetime, would use the example of a thousand years. I mean, Peter probably thought this was the extreme hyperbole, right? Even if it takes him a thousand years. Uh Uh-huh. What about 2,000, Peter? Right? 2,000 years. But listen to what he says. It's like a day to him of what a thousand years is. So when it comes to God's plans, we're talking about a God who plays the long game. They're talking about a God who, who, when he just told Abraham, you know what, I'm going to send you back here with you. I'm going to send your descendants back to this very land to wipe out this evil people. But they're not evil enough yet. When they're evil enough, I'm going to send you back to wipe out the Canaanites. How long is it before Abraham's descendants go back? 500 years. This is a God who makes commitments, and it may take him centuries or millennia to follow through with that commitment because to him... I mean, 500 years, is, that's the difference between breakfast and lunch. There's no, there's no pressure on him in that regard. A th- as, a, as, a, as a fast dying species like we are, yeah, it seems like we've done 200 generations since he said this. For him, it's like a couple of days. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. His promise has some count slowness. Isn't that what we say? Come on, get on with it. But he is patient towards you. Sometimes we see our kids mistake our patience as weakness. He isn't not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In other words, why is it taking so long? Because as the angels and all the rest of us are going, even so, Lord, come quickly. I mean, John was writing that around the year AD 100. John is writing, please, quickly. It's been 1,900 years since he wrote that, and he hasn't come But maybe that's still quick in God's standard because God isn't slow. He's patient. And he's as as the angels and John and the rest of us go, please, Jesus, come, please. He's going, one more. No, no, one more. There's another one. There's another one out there who will hear and listen and who will repent and who will follow me. There's another one out there, and I'm not ending this so long as there's any more according to my plan who'll come. I'll be patient. I'll wait for it till it's all full, till it's all done. When it does happen, though, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. In Mark, again, Peter's gospel potentially, we see it, and guess what? There's still a response. 
Mark 13, 24 through 27 says this, But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man. Ah, Daniel reference. They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels to gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. See, we get to be celebrating of that. We get to celebrate the fact that he is going to come back and that we get to experience that. We don't want to be alarmed. We might have to take a second and consider the fact that God's instruction to us, that Jesus is teaching to us in times of trouble for his followers is this, don't be alarmed. I've, I've watched social media recently and I feel like some of my brothers and sisters are alarmed. Beloved, I think some of you are alarmed. Mark 13, 5 through 8, and Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do, do you hear that? When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Now, does that mean wars and rumors of wars aren't going to happen? Oh, no, no, they happen. That, that's, that's normal. Welcome to the human species, right? Welcome to the human race. That's who we are. But as followers of Jesus Christ, what is our response to hearing this? Don't be alarmed. This must take place. The end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines. This is the human condition. They never stop. They're always there. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. We've talked about that. It happened in Jesus' time. It's happened every generation since Jesus' time. It's going to continue happening throughout all these different things. That doesn't mean we don't work to solve it. It doesn't mean we don't take on compassion or national children and feed tens of thousands of children every single day as the church. Of course we do. It doesn't mean we don't invest in changing our nation. It doesn't mean we don't vote or anything ridiculous like that. What it means is in the midst of it where we gain great power is that we, unlike everyone else, aren't alarmed. He said it was going to happen. Stay awake, be on guard, do not be anxious. Watch, stand firm in your faith. We'll come back to Mark 13 quite a bit as we go through Daniel 11 and 12 in the spring. But keep in mind that we rejoice about the second coming of Jesus the same way the shepherds and the wise men did about the first coming. This is exciting to us. It's the one thing we're really waiting for. Is there going to be a lot of tumultuous, crazy stuff going on in the midst of it? Uh Uh-huh. I'm sad that that's not going to happen, but when Jesus comes back, it'll be worth it. These are the themes of Advent. The first one, my personal one, and yours, and the second one, waiting, anticipation, hope, being alert, and being watchful. 1332, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you don't know what time the hour will come. We don't, we're not being on guard against the world. We're on guard because the over-shepherd is coming back. And we need to be prepared to have created a situation with the lives, done what he wanted us to do with the talents that he's given us. I was going to close today with Jesus' final words to Pontius Pilate, which were about the second advent in the book of Mark. It's in Mark fourteen sixty-two, and Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven but I'm going to cheat. And I think Mark and Peter would understand. I'm going to end with actually a, a, a passage from the book of John. 
Because there's a truth here that I want us to engage in. That even though the skeptical adult for, her, for whom we look at the history books and go, it's been 2,000 years, surely you'd have come by now. There's also a little child in us that can't wait for him to come get us. We're like kids in daycare. And we're waiting for dad to come get us. And we're eagerly anticipating. I've had two experiences that reminded me how real this was for me, that I get to stuck in my head too much, and, and that I realized how real at the heart level this was for me. One was years ago, and we've done it here, when singing It Is Well at seminary, and we had a seminary professor who, when he led It Is Well, and he would, had this brilliant way of leading line by line and talking and teaching through it. <clears throat> and then one day, we were singing the last line, <clears throat> The trump shall resound. And during the last line, he was having every, of us stop at every line. And, the, and when we sang that line, and the trump shall resound, and we all stopped, he had put the orchestra all along the back line uh, in the room, in the sanctuary, and we sang that line, and all the trumpets blew together. And apparently, I believe, at least that a preacher of rapture is possible, because I thought we were going. I mean, it was, I was like, there, and there it is, right there. What timing! Like, that was the... I mean, I was that sure. And we've done it here. We've done it here. Actually, I had shofar. Um, uh, Matt Lance and I stood in the back and blew shofar at that moment in the song. And it'll, it'll get you. But my favorite actually happened um, uh, many years ago when Mark was, I guess, probably four or five years old when we did our first Passover. And, uh, and when you do the Passover at the very end, if you've experienced this, you send a child out to see if Elijah is coming. And so um, I, I made the mistake of describing to Emma in detail Elijah, and then she wouldn't leave the table. Um, when I said, go ahead and look out there, there should be a guy, probably scraggly, big beard, walking stick. He's probably got a camel hide outfit on and maybe eating a, a locust. And she, she was like, not going anywhere. So I had to send someone else to go check and see if Elijah was coming. Um, uh, but when I sent Mark to go see, if, when he was four or five years old, to go see if Elijah was coming, he ran out there and, and came right back in and was like, nope, no, nobody fits that description. Like, great. Now, as Christians, though, at the Passover, what we do is we go, because next year, in, we don't just say next year in Jerusalem, we say next year in the New Jerusalem. And so I sent the child back out. I always send the child back out to go see, <clears throat> are the, I, ask, I tell the child, I want you to go look and see, are the clouds being split? Is a trumpet beginning to blast? Is the Lord coming down at this moment? Because you wouldn't want to end Passover and have like 30 seconds later, Jesus show up and be like, sorry, we already cleaned up. Like, it's a, like no, we'll, we'll, we'll wait. Go check and make sure we're not ending Passover just as Jesus shows up. And so what, what I remember so distinctly at that age and, and the church we were at, and Mark runs out there and he's gone. And he's gone. And he's gone. And we're all starting to go like, what is he? Um, like we're, we're, people are starting to look out the windows like what? And I'm sure Ginger is starting to get nervous. Where's my four-year-old kid or whatever? Like, and he comes walking back in as if, I mean, just defeated. His head's down. He came walking back and sat back down and was like, no, not coming. And realizing in that moment, I can't wait for him to come back. And, and I'm daily disappointed that he didn't. And to experience life that way and to realize, so I've got work to do because he's going to show up any minute. It's, it's time. He's going to show up any minute. And there's a lot of people who haven't, who I, a lot of my friends, I haven't told about the mercy that he's given me. And any minute I could run out of those opportunities. And so I need to get to that. If we believe there's a whole generation that's going to face persecution differently than us, then we should be going like, how do, where do I sign up to prepare them? Where do I sign up to train them? 
Where do I sign? If I have to miss the service, I'll miss the service. If I've been, I can watch that later. Right now, there are children who need to be prepared. How, where do I do that? Because I feel like we're running short on time with this. And when I hear that, the action isn't just panic. God doesn't say be alarmed. He goes, no, no, repent and do it the way I told you. That's still the response. So that's the challenge to us today. So let me read that passage. Let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, what I've told you, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come. There it is. I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. <clears throat> How do we celebrate this and respond to this? Let's stand. And we'll pray. And as we pray, here's what I want you to be thinking about and listening to God's Spirit. Listen, believe, accept, receive, be at peace, remember, repent, follow Him and do it His way. Consider this as we sing about the God who came as a baby to sleep in a feeding trough. Something we know for sure. Who conquered sin and death and is even now preparing a place and is going to come back and get us. Let's pray. Father, keep our eyes focused on you in this. I pray that all of us would not grow weary of doing good, but instead hearing that our King has come, the Son has come, our Teacher has come, God Himself has come. Lord, I pray that it would be, we would follow the same response of repenting and seeking to follow Him with everything we can muster, knowing that Your Spirit works in us to work out what Your will is in our lives. And I pray that we would get on board with that eagerly, urgently, immediately. And I pray this in the name of Your magnificent Son. Amen.